Scott Allen, PhD, is the Dr. James S. Reed Chair in Management at John Carroll University. He's an associate professor and teaches courses in leadership, management skills, and executive communication. He's also a communications coach, consultant, author, podcast host, and entrepreneur. For almost two decades, he's worked with clients to improve their leadership and communication skills. His co-author, Maria Soriano-Young, is the communication manager for the chair of the Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Her background includes 11 years in higher education, having taught a variety of courses at John Carroll University, including business communication, first-year writing, directed the Writing Center, and coached graduate assistants to become effective teachers. Their book, Capped Ovation, Online Presentations by Design, is one of the first comprehensive guides to crafting, revising, and delivering online presentations that are engaging and effective. So it looks like online presentations aren't going away anytime soon. And in fact, it might give us easier access to more audience. So we'd best get good at it. So first, we went through the basics of all presentations and some common pitfalls like huge packed slide decks. And then we move on to the online presentations. So we go through the intentionality of the online presentation from staging to vocal tonality and cadence and various ways to keep the audience's attention from props to the chat function, to pregnant pauses, got it, and more. And then we end on the challenge of the hybrid lecture. It really made me look forward to the challenge of giving more lectures like this. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Here's a word from Dr. Aaron Wiseman from the Physician Coaching Alliance, our sponsor for this week. Hi, I'm Dr. Aaron Wiseman, and I'm here today to talk about Physician Coaching Alliance, otherwise known as PCA. This is a space dedicated to providing stellar coaching for our colleagues so you can do your best work in the world. We believe that in order to change the culture of healthcare as we know it today, all physicians and others working in healthcare need access to coaching. So we can help you find a coach, become a coach, or join our community of coaches to strengthen the work that you're doing. One value that I want to mention that we share in PCA is community over competition. Because gone are the days that we see each other as enemy. Instead, we believe working together is the key to success of the individual and the whole. So if you're coaching curious or a coach yourself, come on over to PCA. We'd love to see you there. Dr. Scott Allen, Maria Soriano-Young, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Block, for having us. We appreciate it. Oh, yes, Brad, thank you. Brad, please, only my parents, I make them call me doctor. Everyone. Else <laughs> well, thank you, Brad. Thank you for having us, Brad. This is long overdue. I've yet to do a podcast that covers presentations because as physicians, we have to present all the time, especially during our training. Yes. So what we're going to be talking about is the transition from live presentations to doing it remote. But let's start out with just what are the basics that we need to know about a live presentation? Like, for instance, are people still using PowerPoint? Should I still be bringing my slide carousel? to my talks? Or is there something else that people are using? If I open PowerPoint, are they like, okay, boomer. <laughs> They're saying that anyways. <laughs> you know, I think I've seen recently a gentleman who's using Prezi video just in an amazing way. But you know, PowerPoint right now generally is the industry standard. There's some Canva, there's some Prezi, there's a couple other tools, you know, Keynote that are being used. But generally speaking, I think the industry is still using PowerPoint. Maria, wouldn't you agree? Yes, it very much depends on the organization. My position here is now of two very different worlds. And when I was teaching at John Carroll, I spent 11 years in higher education. And I did a lot of presentations and went to a lot of conferences. And you saw PowerPoint, you saw the Google version, which I think is just Google Slides. I saw people using Canva. I used Prezi quite often. 
And now that I work at Cleveland Clinic, it is 100% PowerPoint. And that is because Cleveland Clinic has very specific rules for their marketing and their branding down to the exact hues that you are allowed to use in your logos. And they have everything set for presenters. Like you can only use a certain number of slide backgrounds. So when you're presenting to a new organization or when you're presenting within your organization, you really have to get a sense of what the norm and what the expected standard is. I have never seen anything at Cleveland Clinic that is outside of PowerPoint. And I imagine that people would maybe get in trouble if they deviated from that. Yeah, I would agree with you, Scott, that PowerPoint is pretty much still the way to go. You know what, though? At, at times now, I'm not using PowerPoint. And that actually, there's this really cool concept co called the Von Restorf effect. I might have misspoken that. But it really means basically this. Given a whole bunch of similar stimuli, the one that is different stands out more. So this is like Banksy, right? Banksy creates this work of art. All of a sudden someone buys it, it's shredded. That stands out as something different and it's global news. So sometimes now I may use PowerPoint and it's only images and people are then, it, it shifts the energy. It, it changes things up and I can grab people's attention in a little bit of a different way. I might use a handout and that handout might be one page and all of a sudden it's a totally different energy. And people actually appreciate that. Something that I heard you say, and I can't remember if it was you were being interviewed on a podcast or it was someone that was on your show of uh, Steve Jobs said, if you need a PowerPoint, then you clearly don't know what you're talking about or something like that. Right. And it made me think because I've got an upcoming presentation that I'm going to be doing on sleep surgery that I give to the sleep apnea surgeries. And I've given it, you know, quite a few times. And I thought about just throwing out the slides at this point and just sitting down and saying, so what do you know about sleep surgery? And just kind of go from there. And I know it well enough that I can just chat about it without having to be distracted by the slides. Yeah. Steve Jobs said, people who know what they're talking about don't need PowerPoint. And so that is... That's because Microsoft was a competitor of his. They don't need PowerPoint. They need the Apple version. They, they need <laughs> Keynote is what <laughs> that sentence was. You know. <laughs> you know, Maria loves this quote as well. It's one of my favorite quotes. And so as you think about this presentation that's coming up, this is one of the quotes that frames everything. And we really, in the book, focus on design. And how you design the learning experience really, truly matters. It's no different than how you design a procedure it very much matters how you design a procedure. And there's very strict protocols for how we design a procedure. And there's a really cool quote, 90% of how well the talk will go is determined before the speaker steps on the platform. And that's Summers White. So we really give a lot of attention to, hey, what are you putting into motion? And I've done some work with the cardiac surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, and they may say, look, I have seven minutes for this presentation. And I look at their deck and there's 23 slides, <laughs> slide, there's multiple and there's no way, there is no way they can be good. They're going to sit and turn around and stare at a screen and talk through it fast, quickly. And every time I've ever worked with one of these individuals, we were able to cut at least half of the text, cut half of the images. And it's almost like at times, and Maria, maybe you comment on this, but it's like an overgrown shrubbery in the beginning. And it's just this mess of everything, the person's mind. And if you cut away at all of that, there's a beautiful flamingo in there, but you have to give that some time and attention. Just cutting and pasting a bunch of pictures, a bunch of text, you will literally not be able to be good. And that's what's fascinating about this whole space. But again, Maria, maybe you jump into design a little bit because that's a really, that's a focus of how we think about this work. Absolutely. Design is, is one of my favorite aspects of the book. And particularly what I was thinking about, Brad, when you were talking about, I can just throw out the slides and I can just sit and talk. That's a fantastic way to go because that allows you to connect with the audience. But when you're thinking about if slides are necessary, and if you determine that they are, if when you're thinking about what to put on those slides, the question that 
you would want to ask yourself is who are these slides for? Obviously, if you know the material, you don't need to design the slides for yourself because you might not even be looking at them. Hopefully you'd be in front of the slides, advancing them when you need to. But if your audience members need to know data and statistics, if they need to know certain acronyms, if you need to show them some aspect of a procedure or demonstrate some kind of, you know, training technique, whatever it might be, those would be pieces that are best accompanied by a visual aid. So in those moments, this is where during the design phase, you have your audience in mind. You are designing the presentation for them, not for you. So that mindset allows you to make more conscious choices about what is actually on those slides. So maybe it's just an image, maybe it's a video clip, maybe it's definition of some kind of concept. If I may interject, I think there are going to be two very different situations on presentations in medicine. Yeah. There's going to be the cardiac surgeon who lives and breathes this one procedure mm -hmm. that she's going to be talking about, right? So she needs slides up there to demonstrate the procedure, right? Yes. But it's something she's done a hundred times, written papers on it. Fine. But then you've got residents who are asked to give talks every so often and they don't live and breathe it. They just learned it. They just put it together. And I think for them, yes, we're the slides for, they got to give themselves some grace here and admit that the slides are actually for them. But to your point, I think, what do I really need in order to remember what I need to say? And what do I not really need? What can I strip away to find that flamingo? And maybe it's not going to be the best looking flamingo, right? But yeah. it's going to be at least some semblance of a flamingo. Yes. I mean, sometimes I'll see bullets that, I mean, they don't say this, but it will say the equivalent of another thing that you need to remember is that for procedures involving <laughs> X, Y, and Z, there are three different techniques. So we can change that to, there's three major techniques. Yeah. <laughs> and then I can actually speak to you and speak to that then, and maybe have a couple bullets under that have the names of the three techniques, but I don't need to write whole sentences. And at times when I'm working with physicians or when I'm working with other professionals, we really emphasize using the notes. So if there is a lot of content that we need to make sure that the end user has, so Brad, if you design this presentation and you decide to use some PowerPoint slides, Maybe the slides themselves are minimal. Maybe you're speaking to a couple main points on each slide, but then you give the participants the deck. And when we're online, that's very easy. Just upload it in the chat or whatever. But maybe the notes then have a little more flavor or links to additional resources or places they can go to learn more. So everything doesn't have to be on the slide. That could be on a handout. That could be in the notes section. But I think, again, we kind of default at times. That's where everything goes. The kitchen sink, it just goes up there on the slide. Up, oh, and we need an image, so let's pack that in. <laughs> or now two. <laughs> and it gets to be this cluttered mess. And here's the thing. And Marie and I talk a lot about this. When there's all of that text up there, you are now actively competing with the slide. So there's a woman named Nancy Duarte that says, look, if people can't check in with what's going on in your slide in three to five seconds, you are now actively competing for their attention because half of them are reading and not hearing a word you're saying. So it's really, really interesting when you think about how you design the slides. Again, 90% of how this talk is going to go, it's cast in stone before you even step to the podium. Championships are won in the off season. <laughs> and if I could jump in, I, Scott, I want to go back to what you had said about not writing full sentences. And, you know, this kind of ties back again to trimming the shrubbery and finding the flamingo. And also, Brad, to your point about sometimes the residents do need that information for reassurance. We're not saying that you can't have information on slides. If that's what you need for confidence and for reminders. Absolutely. But use that 90% of the design phase to make a mess of your slides. Write full sentences on there as you're designing. Because, I mean, at least for me, and this was always how I would write lesson plans, especially when I was teaching a brand new class. I would write in my lesson plans full sentences of what I wanted to say because I'm so afraid, 
especially with teaching writing, that I was going to miss a key point for my students. And when we were talking about a reading in particular, I would always want to make sure that we were covering every aspect of the topic. So I would write out the questions. I would write out the full sentences. And then I would default to it was a choppy class because I would be stopping and, oh, let me look at my notes to make sure I covered everything. With more experience, obviously, I didn't need to do that as much. But when it comes to your slides, it's absolutely okay to just dump everything, dump all the statistics, make the, the full sentences, write out the giant bullet point lists as you're going through that process. Then the more you go through the slides, the more comfortable you become with the material, the more you can start to cut some things down so that the slides just become like billboards. We talk about this in our book that each slide is a billboard and it can also become like a visual cue for you as the speaker. So you would see the slide ideally during your presentation and already know exactly what you want to say, even though there's only three or four words or maybe just an image at that point. Yeah. Reminds me of a quote that's attributed to pretty much everybody. <laughs> maybe. I'm sorry, I wrote you this long letter. I didn't have time to write you a shorter one. Something along mm -hmm. those lines, right? If you're pressed for time, you're going to cram it all in, but really take the time to sit down and pair and pair and pair and pair and pair and mm -hmm. then put it in a place that you can look, but it won't end up vomited on your PowerPoint slides. Yeah. And Brad, can I say one thing real quick? So that, stat, that approach works for Maria. That approach has never worked for me. So I think we each have to figure out what works best for us and what approach is going to really help serve us best. Because I love that about her description of that, because for me, that just didn't work. But for each one of us, honing in on what does work, I think is critical. But most critical is that 90% is cast in stone before we step on the stage. Bottom line, you're either going to put these students in the next week or two through a painful hour where they're going to walk away saying, wow, that was good. I, that went by quick. It was fun. And I learned. And I think that's what all of us want is that our, our learners and that user-centered design that Maria mentioned, we want the people to walk away saying that versus, oh my gosh, that was horrible. And we all know what it feels like when you're in that horrible presentation, you're a prisoner and you can't get out. You're stuck. They pull up the first slide. There's 60 more coming and you just, you, you want to escape. Footnotes <laughs> are longer than the actual notes. All the, the data they're quoting. Okay. So this is, but this talk, your book, your podcast is really about what's changed since the start of the pandemic is, is that we can now give these talks remotely. And I have a feeling in medicine, some of this is going to stay. Because I can now give a grand rounds in at the University of Southern California from my home on Long Island, New York. Yes. Whereas before, I'd have to fly out, take a day, take time away from my family, take with people wouldn't necessarily have access to me. Not that they want access to me, but you get <laughs> where I'm going with this. We'll have access to a lot more experts and their talks than we otherwise would if this stays. And it might also be that some people recognize that they're just creating a hard red line and they're yeah. not going to spend overnight anywhere. So it'll give you access to those people if, if it continues. And if you want to go, if you want to be one of those people that gets invited to speak, well, got to do it well. So let's talk about how we can do it well. So before we do, just what are you all using to describe this? Because the Zoom has become an adjective, right? I'm giving a Zoom lecture. I have a Zoom yeah. meeting. What's the terminology that we're using here? Virtual presentation, online presentation, that's the terminology I've been using. Maria, anything else you're thinking of? I would probably say again that it's often organization specific. If an organization is only using Teams or Zoom, they might just call it Teams presentation. But for our purposes, yeah, we've been all encompassing. And I think online presentation can also include webinars, not just live presentations that have participants. Let's explore live presentations. So we've just talked about live presentations, and now we're going to talk about virtual live presentations. So where do we begin? I've got my slide deck that I've used for my live presentations. What do I need to think about? What do I need to do? The largest one for me is 
and, and I've learned this from watching a lot of presentations and even just meetings with colleagues is taking inventory of your setting and also thinking about how you are appearing on the screen. I'm sure that we'll probably come back to this because I know that Scott likes to talk about what Aaron Beverly told us. Um, he's the Toastmasters world champion. And he, when he spoke with us, he said that your stage for an online presentation is your screen. And it's nice because there's this, just this little box. You don't have to worry about use the whole stage, walk around in the space. You're very limited. But what that also means is you're magnified. People are seeing you a lot closer up than they would in person. And not only are they looking at you, are they looking at what you're wearing, your hand gestures, your facial expressions, but they're also looking behind you. So they're going to look at every aspect of your setting. So one of the things that we discussed in our book was intentionally designing your setting as much as you can control it. We do know that some people may not be able to control, depending on time of day, people in their house, they may not be able to control exactly what appears behind them. But as much as you can, you want to be conscious of what is in that computer screen and that stage because people will be very curious. So if you have a whole alcoholic bottle collection, they're going to be looking at what's behind you and, you know, for better, for worse. That's what you're presenting on, right? Exactly. A wine distributor. Great. Exactly. That's topic specific. Yes. But the assumption there is that it's not just the slide deck that they're seeing. Yes. Right. Right. So we write about this. We write about this, Brad. I mean, it's fascinating. Some of the research on first impressions, it's like 39 milliseconds or a hundred milliseconds and people have sized you up. So in this new domain, yes, this is the first impression. You met me tonight and it made an impression. Now that's my technology, that's my lighting, that's my connectivity, that's what's behind me, that's what I'm wearing, or at least you you can't see my pajama pants right now, but you can see my top. And all of that is forming that impression. So they're footy pajamas, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's just a one piece. (laughs) Nice. But so Maria, I can't agree. I can't agree with you more. Do we have the right camera? Do we have the right lighting? Do we have the right sound? Because I still have colleagues, what are we, 16, 17 months, who they, they still, they're still here. Oh, my Wi-Fi is horrible. Or I know you can't see me. Or we can't hear them because they're going in and out. And it's really interesting. that. So I think number one, especially if you're going to do this a lot, and Maria and I talk about this. I invested probably $600. And I don't think, Maria, I don't think you've spent anything on other than what you had. You're wearing your headphones right now. You have some lamps. Are you using lamps for your lighting right now? I mean, I just have the overhead lights on, but I have a desk lamp that has an LED setting that I pointed toward my face, but that's it. But there's intentionality behind that. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's important for each one of us. I was coaching a physician last summer for a job interview, and he was in this cavernous space with empty shelves behind him. And it was difficult to hear. And there was like a turned over wine bottle that would look like a ship. And this is where he was going to do the interview. There was no intentionality and no design. And that's no fault of his own. There wasn't in my world either until 18 months ago. (laughs) But we learned quickly. So that's number one. Do you have the technology and do you have the setting? And so literally we're getting ready to go on a trip. I have a presentation to an organization while we're away. I'm bringing my microphone. I'm bringing an ethernet cable. I'm bringing extension cord. I'm bringing all of this equipment that I never would have, but we need to provide it. I'm bringing my HD 1080 webcam. I never would have traveled with all of that, but now I am so that I can do with excellence, right? That's one. Maria, you want to talk a little bit about voice and the importance of voice in this domain? Sure. When you're thinking about, you know, how you sound to other people, your voice is connected to what you're talking about and how you get people to go along with you. When you're giving your presentation, Brad, about, and what did you say it was sleep? Sleep apnea surgery. Yeah. Okay. So when you're talking about that, whether it's virtually or whether it's in person, 
even though it's a topic about sleep, you want people to be excited and you want people to be, yeah, you want people to be interested and enthusiastic about it. So even though it's a, you know, topic about fatigue, you wouldn't present to people and talk about it like this and read your notes and just whatever, because that monotone, very slow pace of speech, I mean, that's just going to prompt people to do whatever else they have available. They're going to grab their their phones. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to grab their, start looking at their phones. So what's the right cadence? Because sometimes we speak, if we have a lot of slides to go through, we're going to try and pick up the pace and blow through them and talk really quickly. And that's not correct. But if we're just Mm -hmm. talk, right? So what's correct? Scott, what's the recommended range? I, I, I it doesn't even need to be like an answer. Well, it should be 15 words per minute or whatever the, yeah, right. that's because we're not going to be able to like gauge, but how do we know we're talking too fast? How do we know mm-hmm. we're talking too slow? Brad, you're doing a great job. The podcast is an awesome opportunity to practice this whole vocal variety. I'm switching up my pace, my pausing, my pitch, my volume. I'm key. I'm, I'm bolding key words with my voice and then adding a pause at the end of that so that it sinks into the listeners. So for me, sometimes I'm speeding up, sometimes I'm slowing down. Sometimes my volume increases, sometimes if I'm telling a story, but I think there's intentionality behind that. It's no different than the setting. It's no different than how many words we put on the slide or what's on the slide. If I'm practicing my storytelling, my vocal variety, in a couple of weeks when you give that presentation, when you're delivering the podcast, as I'm speaking right now, it's an opportunity to practice vocal variety, which in my mind, is almost the most important from a delivery standpoint. It's the most important element of this whole delivery piece of the presentation because it transcends a webinar, a phone presentation from the podium, Zoom, TED Talk. If you can use your voice to help tell the story, but you know what it's like. Sometimes we, when I'm working with physicians, it moves into something like this and it's really just this really the for the majority of the time and that's very specialty specific (laughs) i don't know maybe that's the nephrologists who are talking about the you know their glomerular nephritis they're talking about kidney functions (laughs) taking their time making their way through the tubules and then you've got like a neurosurgeon who's Right. They've got to make their way through a six hour surge that's very delicate, but they've got two more that day. So they're like, but I get what you're saying. And I think it jolts the listener out of complacent listening. Sometimes to make your point, intentionality. Sometimes you make your point by emphasizing your words. Yes. Sometimes you need to increase your volume to make your point. I think when I, my personality is very different when I'm on a podcast versus, and when I'm with my patients, actually. Yeah. And when I'm around my friends, I'm actually pretty morose. There's not many facial expressions. It's just flat. But when I'm with my patients, they need to know that I care about them. Yes. Sitting that listening doesn't translate. So I've got to amp up my personality to 11. What you're saying is that's the same idea. Take what you're normally like, but you amp it up and down and up, amplify it, increase the, what am I thinking? The, not the frequency, the uh, amplitude. Take okay. personality, increase the amplitude. Yeah. You're setting the emotional tone. That's how we communicate that. In a couple of weeks, when you're giving this presentation, you're going to open your mouth and you're going to set a tone. And you could set the tone of, this is a topic I really actually love. I think it's fascinating. And it's something that really keeps my mind engaged for hours and hours. You start off with that, huh, okay. And you start off with, well, tonight, yeah, I know it's late, but I know you're probably tired. This is the last place you want to be, but let's get through this and let's. And how many presentations have we been to when that's how they start? Like for real, is that what you're coming out of the gates with? Cause now I saw the slide deck go up and there's 60 of them. And please let me go. Please get me out of here. Can I just read what you're doing? And so I think there's that. And you also mentioned something really good. It's this notion. I was speaking on the podcast with a gentleman named Peter Hopwood and he calls it an attention reset. So even in this presentation, I don't know how many people are going to be in there. Even if you switch up the 
maybe you're in a circle because you decide to sit down and just have a circle and you're having a conversation with them and it's more of a conversational tone. Maybe you have a one-page handout and a circle and from the kind of Von Restorf effect, wow, this is totally different. And then you begin with a story. And that story is something that they're going to experience, or that story is something that will have meaning to them. And all of a sudden, you're going from a story, you're going from a new setting and a staging, the, the space, use of space. And there isn't a, what I was expecting, a big PowerPoint slide. You just have a one-page handout, and you're telling this engaging story out of the gates. And then you ask them a question. And tell them to turn and buzz. And they talk to the person next to them about what they think the answer is. And then you come back to, and so Hopwood is talking about, okay, what am I doing to every five to seven minutes reset? Then maybe a slide goes up with an image. And now we speak to that a little bit, but again, that's design, right? And that takes some time and it takes some practice. And, but there's all these tools that we have available to us to engage people in those attention resets, maybe a quick video, as Maria said. It's a really cool area to think about. That was the episode where he mentioned your baseball. And as I'm looking at your bookshelf right now, yes. looking at the baseball, that was, yes. sorry, podcast listeners, you don't get to experience this because we're <laughs> listening. But I heard that not too long ago where he mentions the baseball that's in Scott's background. And I'm looking at the baseball right now yeah. on the, on the zoom. So that Cause he does really things like he does cool things. He'll grab something from his background and put it here. And again, that's another quick little attention reset. Yeah. Where he was talking in that episode about how he'll pick up a camera and now show this. And he has some metaphor and all of a sudden, again, it's not just a talking head looking to the right and reading what they want to tell you for 40 minutes. <laughs> That's funny because the way I phrased that question, I sent you some questions beforehand, was not carrot top, <laughs> to props. Again, I'm dating myself. He's a stand-up comedian, and all he has is a big thing of props, and it just, he picks up in rapid fire one after another after another. So, but you're saying, maybe I should be, right? Because that's just another way of grabbing people's attention. So far, we're talking about the intentionality of your setup, the intentionality of how you're using your voice, and now the intentionality of how you're using these visual cues. But aside from visual cues, these, there's what about a non sequitur? And now for something completely different, right? Something like that to grab their attention. Or, or what are other examples of these resets? Well, I would probably say that one of the biggest, you know, when you were talking about props in a sense, not necessarily showing some kind of physical prop, but a prop for engagement. There are so many different methods for engagement that we originally thought that online presentations took away any type of interaction, took away any type of audience engagement. And it is true that, as we mentioned earlier, when you're doing an online presentation, you are fighting for people's attention. We don't always know if people will have their cameras on. I think, Brad, that was one of the questions that you might have had. We don't know where people will be tuning in. We don't know and we can't control what kind of device they are tuning in on. So they could be just on their cell phone. They could be on their cell phone on the train coming into work. Or they could be fully focused and on their computer at home. You'll have animals that are entering the sound or the screen. You'll have kids that are coming in. And people can't always control that. But what you can do is every once in a while, one of these attention resets or intention resets is to use some kind of method of engagement. And that doesn't always have to be just talking. We all know that it's awkward when you have a lot of people and you're waiting for someone to break the silence, but you can incorporate that. You can incorporate small chat rooms with individual breakout rooms. That was the term that I was looking for, but you can also just use the chat box. So if people are unable to turn their microphones on for some reason, they can still participate. Scott, you love using the chat box in a lot of different ways. So do you want to talk about how you incorporate those with either full sentence answers or even just one word? Yeah, I, I love the chat. And again, I think it's when we're online, it's about a new set of tricks and tools to engage the audience. So a couple ways I use the chat. Sometimes I'll say, I was speaking to a law firm and I said, go ahead and if you would, tell me your first concert. And that's, I said, this will tell me everything I need to know about you as an audience. 
and one woman had Jimi Hendrix and another person had Metallica. And I just joke with folks at the beginning. I'll say, wow, Metallica, you're angry in your youth, Pete, huh? What tour was that? And Pete will say Monsters of Rock or whatever. And, or it could be favorite film. Or at times I might say, if you would go ahead and just put your reaction to what I just said. What do you think about that? If you would put that in the chat and all of a sudden a bunch of things come pouring into the chat. I spoke to a group of medical students about a week ago and 40 things come into the chat and I can say, oh, okay. So who is someone who's a great leader growing up for you? And you just see a bunch of grandfather, grandmother, mom, dad, all of that type of stuff. And so again, I use that as an attention reset. Sometimes I might follow up with a quick interview. Pete, you said your first concert was Metallica. Tell us about that. What was the what year was that? And, and so then I'll, Pete will unmute and he'll tell me. So you have to be a little more directive in this space. I might ask for something in the chat and then interview someone based on what they said. Or I might conclude by just saying, look, we've had a really interesting conversation that what I would love for you to do is just put one word in the chat to sum up how you're feeling as we close down. And I do that when I have guest speakers and it's beautiful because the guest speaker all of a sudden sees 60 inspired, enthused, wowed, incredible, inspiring, excited. And the speaker walks away feeling like they're gold. You never get that when we're live. So this medium can be just as strong. It can be, but we have to experiment. And that's a key word we use a lot in the book as well. You have to experiment with different techniques when we're live, when we're online, when we're at the podium and it's fun. It's really, it's a, it's an interesting puzzle to keep people engaged in this medium, but that attention reset, again, designing those in a quick video. Then we go to a quick breakout discussion, as Maria said, then I do a little more lecturette. And then I ask a question. They say something in the chat. I interview that person about what their answer was, why they thought that. And we just, I go back into lecturette. So it's intentionally weaving different attention resets in. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's getting me actually excited to do something that I usually dread. Yeah. So it really, yeah, it, you can get, it, it sounds a lot more fun to try to yes. include stuff like that rather than just slogging through the material. Yes. Cause we set ourselves up to slog and yeah. when we're slogging, guess what? Yeah. How are they feeling? Yeah. And that even if you didn't cover everything that you wanted to cover, it's still, they're going to learn a lot more. They're going to be a lot more engaged uh, and they're going to enjoy it a lot more. And you're going to enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that, that I would want to say, particularly with hybrid presentations where, and I know Brad, that this was also something that I had that's seen out here. Segue, that's what we were yeah. going to next. Perfect. I've learned this from my own teaching but also I'm seeing how this is and is not really working in my current organization. Hybrid is really tough. And I am of the belief that you have to be even more intentional in oh. reminding yourself that you have two audiences. Because yeah. when this past spring at John Carroll, where Scott and I were both teaching, we were doing the high flex model. So we had some students who were in the classroom in front of us, and then we had some students who were tuning in live. And so they were on a computer screen. Obviously, you can't do activities in the same way. No. You can't just have discussions. It really took a lot of intentional time and design to try and figure out how you could, as equally as possible, engage both groups meaningfully. And you have to think that same way. If you're doing some kind of a hybrid presentation, even an online presentation, it really does. You have to remind yourself where your audience is and who might be in your audience. And particularly with hybrid presentations, you don't want to have two separate groups. And one of my big fears and big goals when I was doing the high flex teaching in the spring was that I did not want one group of students to feel like they had a more beneficial learning experience than the other. I, I had a co-teacher in my class and I told her at the beginning of the semester, make sure that I don't ever forget that I have students online Make sure that if I ask a question to the students who are in the classroom, that I'm also ensuring that the students online have some way to answer. And it was, you have to train yourself to remember 
that you have to engage both of those groups. And it's really difficult. I'm not necessarily seeing that in the meetings that I have listened into right now at Cleveland Clinic. And it's mostly because I think the expectation and the understanding is that the majority of people who are attending the meetings would be there in person. And it's a lot of just information presentation. There is no discussion necessarily. But you wonder, do you even know that there are other people who might, there's no questions in the chat. There are people who are tuning in online. So that's what I would, did. I did yeah. those types of things before where you could, like there's going to be a live presentation. And for those unable to make it, you can still get something out of this. Mm -hmm. I think that's how it was treated. But it sounds like what you're saying is you really shouldn't be treating it that way. The people at home are not second-class citizens or the people remotely are not second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. So then my solution for that would be alternating between engaging with one group and then engaging with the other group. Well, that yeah. sounds like that's not the solution either. How do we juggle this? Here's one potential solution. Here's an option, a consideration. Maria and I talk a lot in the book about having a co-pilot because it's really difficult to, you almost feel like a DJ sometimes. You Or when I present other places, they call it a producer. So the producer has all of the videos, has all of, is monitoring the chat, is actually fueling the chat, feeding the chat, and putting people into breakout rooms so that I can put people live into the breakout rooms. So you have to have, or a consideration is to have a co-pilot to help you manage the process and help you pay attention to both worlds. Even when it's just fully online, the co-pilot is incredibly helpful. But in that high flex situation, I think that's one potential solution is, Maria is exactly right. It's gonna take us some time to really, I think just like any other medium, it can be done, but I think you better A, be great at delivery, you better have your eyes looking into the eye of the camera. Everyone has a front row seat. You better have clean slides because their attention. And again, for me, one solution in that domain is that's how I think about it. But wouldn't that, if you're speaking and someone's managing the chat, yeah, doesn't that distract from the speaking? Potentially, you have to decide. I think I had some sessions this summer. I'm sorry, last spring where people were incredibly engaged in the chat. The speaker's speaking and people are really just pumping the chat with observations, comments, thoughts, questions. Someone asks a question, other people will then find something on the web, post the link. And I don't know, it, it's different. I could go where you just went for sure, but it's also, it's a version of engagement. They were asking questions. They were participating just in a little bit of a different way. So I too have that concern and that assumption. And when people are just blowing up the chat, that might be another way to keep them with you, to really follow that. So I think it's something at least to experiment with. And again, if you have a co-pilot that you decide, hey, let's experiment with you just seeding this thing, you seeding it, commenting, helping people think through, asking questions about what I just said. That's a, it's an interesting experiment to run at least. My thought would actually, this goes back maybe, I don't know, maybe to a basic, but it could be a basic for an offloading presentation. Set your norms at the beginning of the session. Yeah. And if you want people to send or talk in the chat while you are speaking, let them know that and just say outright, because I will have slides up. I may not be able to see the chat, we'll be monitoring the chat and will let me know if there are any questions. If, for example, you as the presenter don't want any questions until the end of the session, you have to state that because people are not necessarily going to know how to behave, I'm using air quotes there, podcast listeners, unless you tell them how to, because they'll transfer what they have done in other online presentation sessions. And they may have chatted in other online presentation sessions and gotten answers right away. And if they do that in yours and they don't get an answer right away, it's going to be confusing. So, you know, this is part of your design process. You have to figure out, will I have a co-pilot? How do I want to use the chat, if anything? And how do I want to set my expectations at the beginning of the session 
for both people who are in person and if you're doing a hybrid presentation, also the people online. Brad, yeah, Maria, that's exactly right. And and again, there's a gentleman, I did a podcast with him a few months ago. His name is Rich Mulholland. He's out of South Africa. And this gentleman, it's amazing to watch him, A, use Prezi the way he does. You could just Google him and you go to YouTube and you will find a bunch of presentations he's given. But when he's live, he'll be doing a presentation for Zoom or for Prezi. He's live giving the presentation. And Brad, he has the chat up and he's every once in a while commenting on people. And again, it's really amazing to watch him do this in real time. He'll say, oh, Brad in New York. Okay, I like that. Yes, you're right. We do need to be focused on that. That is a critical piece of all of this. And then he'll continue forward. But that's his attempt and his experiment of keeping people within and keeping people engaged. So Maria and I have done presentations where she might say, Scott, is there anything in the chat? I'll chime in with a couple of things. And again, it's another little attention reset that kind of clears the air and then we move on. But it's another way of potentially securing engagement. Reminds me of Bob Euchre in Major League. Where he <laughs> says to his to the color man, any anything to add? Nope. <laughs> Best color man in the league. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen. Anything from the chat? Yeah. Nope. No. Pretty <laughs> disengaged, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Has anyone gone on camera yet? Nope, all black screen. <laughs> which is what our babysitter, when she's watching our kids, there's a lecture in the background because she's forced <laughs> to attend. Now she's going to learn the material, otherwise she's not going to pass the class, but she's being forced to attend. So this is how she's on mute, no camera, and it's playing in the background as she's managing my pulling the kids off the... You know, <laughs> curtains or something and that's i mean that that's the aspect of you as the presenter you just have to expect that these types of things are going to happen and when you're doing an online presentation you have pretty much no control you only have control over your tech your setting your appearance your choices of what you're wearing how you accessorize your hair whatever and you just have to understand and accept that not everybody is going to be on camera. Not everybody might be actually listening or sitting in front of the computer. And some people may log on and forget to mute themselves. Some people might log in and still be in their car driving. You, and that's okay. You know, you roll with either. Yeah, you just yeah. see these things happen and you just you don't pay them any mind and you hope that they continue to you know, be engaged in their own way. And then you just continue on as you would with everything else, because you cannot, you can't control any of these situations for any of the participants, which is unfortunate, but it's something that I think you have to accept during that design process. Yeah. But it's also a fun challenge, Maria. It's, I love Brad, my two favorite groups of people to speak to are attorneys and physicians, because both have a thousand other things pulling at them. Both, well, the attorneys are just mean. They just will actually literally sit in the front row and do other work. The physicians, they're being pulled and they're on devices. And, and when I'm presenting live to a group of physicians, if I have 80 in the room and I have 70 of them with me, that's good data. And I, and, and so online, there's a low right? bar for us. We're like children. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so it's really interesting. And I think with Zoom and online, I feel a little bit more like a DJ because I'm totally manufacturing. It's like when you're podcasting, you're totally manufacturing your own energy and you're right. You're turning it up. It's a little, I'm not going to walk upstairs tonight while we're packing and be like, okay, kids, what are we doing now? It's <laughs> the car going. So you're amplified. I would say one thing about this whole process though. Do you have someone in your corner who you can tap, who will give you unfiltered, honest feedback, who you can say, hey, Stacy, Jim, will you watch this and literally count my space fillers? Will you tell me if that was really super boring? You could ask your participants. They may or may not in real time. They'll just look at you and most likely and nod and say, that was awesome. Thank you. Because that's just how it is. But if you can chip away at really getting feedback, then you have data moving forward about what's hitting, what isn't hitting. 
and what to do more of, what to do less of. So I'm relentless. I, I say it every time after a presentation, please give me feedback. Let me know what I can do better. And I say that to my students all the time as well. And feedback filters through after a bunch. So if you're known as someone who's open to feedback, and if you're seeking out allies who will give you authentic feedback, that's worth its weight in gold. It just is. This has been great. And I am now, again, I'm excited to Good. do these presentations that I typically dread. Good. It just It's not going to be a slog anymore. I'm going to look forward to putting them together and trying to figure out ways to keep their attention. So I really appreciate it. This, this has been fantastic. So where can people hear your podcast and where can people find the book? Brad, real quick. Yes. When they're having fun, you're having fun. And it's a reciprocal process. Learning doesn't have to be a drudgery. I always say I want it to be fast, fun, and fascinating. I want the time to go by quickly. I want us to have a little bit of a good time and joke around. And let's talk about some really cool stuff. And so I love that you're looking forward to this presentation because, yeah. And if you're walking in as drudgery, it will be drudgery for them. People can find me at www.captivation.ai. That's captivation.ai and at SJA Tweets. And what about the it, book? What's the book called? The book is Captivation Online Presentations by Design. It's available on Amazon. We have it in print version. We have it as an audio book that you can download from Audible. Um, and then we also have the Kindle version. And our podcast is on iTunes. Is it on any other platform, Scott, or is it just uh, iTunes? Yeah, every, everywhere there's... Everywhere there's What's the word I'm looking for? Fine books are sold. Fine podcasts are found. You know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I listened on Overcast. So it's, it's there. It's everywhere. Cool. Cool. Great. Brad, thank you so much. We really appreciate yes, it. Yes. Thank you so much. It's great you. to talk with you. As we wrap up today, if you're coaching curious or a coach yourself, I encourage you to check out Physician Coaching Alliance at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Physician Coaching Alliance. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.